welcome to Ren Fair History, presented by the Digital Ren Fair. I'm Jonathan Crocker. I perform with the Wild Men at the Arizona Renaissance Festival as Dr. Cranius Lunch, and as Jake the Wild Men with Theater in the Ground at the Ohio Renaissance Festival. And I have been performing at Renaissance Festivals since 1982. And today, I am joined by the lovely and talented Misty Bernard. Hi, friends. I'm Misty Bernard. I have been on the road since 1990, full-time and performing since 1993. You would know me from the Bay Area Renaissance Festival, from the Florida Renaissance Festival, Bristol, I've performed at Sterling, I've performed at Colorado. I am also a jewelry designer and I own a company called Seasong Design. So I am both crafter and performer on the road. And that's been one of the aspects of, you know, of, of these times, you know, the pandemic and, and just getting older, you know, it's, it's there, we're falling away, you know, um, yeah. I am very conscious of entering that generation where, um, there are fewer and fewer of us all the time. And there are great stories and great personalities, um, among us who, um, deserve their, their voice Absolutely. and perspective. So, yeah, I'm hoping we can reach out to a number of people as part of this process too. Absolutely. It, along those lines, it was very, it was such a wild moment when Phyllis Patterson died. Right. You know, we all, that, that information all filtered onto the circuit. Um, and, you know, and there were so many vivid memories. Phyllis Patterson, just for anybody who might not know, is, was the founder of the Southern California Renaissance Pleasure Fair. Um, back in the 60s. That's my home show. So I actually knew Phyllis in a very peripheral manner. I was just a, you know, a little geeky kid going, oh my God, it's Phyllis Patterson, the founder of us, the mother of us all, you know, and, you know, and she was so iconic and the whole process of being in that moment in that time. Now, I obviously wasn't there in the 60s. My first year at Southern Cal would have been in 1989 as a visitor. 1990, spring of 1990 as a participant. Hmm. So, you know, it had 20 years of development before I even showed up on the scene. But there was still this, un, a very difficult, like you hear you hear some of the, the longtime Rennies talking about the magic of the early days of the festival. You know, on the one hand, it sounds like old crotchety people, all oh, back when I was a kid, you know, that whole thing. And on the other hand, there was this something, this, this hard to verbalize emotional heart space that was so profound in that, in that time that I've experienced, you know, it's not like, oh, I was young then and I, you know, I, I could feel those feels. It was more like, I've, I've definitely felt those feels as an adult. And back then that time and space was just genuinely magic. Yeah, you know. that's that's interesting because my first encounter with the Renaissance Festival <clears throat> um, was a little earlier than that. But um, I, I auditioned and got a role at the, the Sterling Renaissance Festival, or at that time the Sterling Pleasure Fair and Summer Marketplace, which was very much a an attempt to emulate and to capture and transport what was going on in California, upstate New York. Sure. Um, the founder of that festival, excuse me, was a history professor in Southern California who experienced the magic, you know, in the 60s and 70s, had some property outside of Oswego, New York, um, in the family. And um, so his dream upon retirement was to recreate uh, that magic 
Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, people talk about the magic, you know, it's that experience of, of entering that space where so much intention had been layered on over years and years of creating a place. I mean, the, the actual slogan of the Sterling Renaissance Fair at that time was a beautiful place for beautiful people to do beautiful things. <laughs> well, that's the best slogan I've ever heard. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, um, and it was a little, you know, as a, as a cynical college student, it was a little saccharine for my taste, you know, going in. I said, oh yeah, right. But then I, it really was a, is a beautiful place. And it was a place for people to let their beauty shine and their creativity, um, you know, this, this place for creative exploration that was unlike anything I'd ever even considered as a possibility. And when you enter into that space, and it's, you know, especially when you're young and, and impressionable, um, it's, it's, it is magic. It's powerful. And th that, is, that is, I think, something of the legacy that I'm interested in trying or in conveying and, and also supporting because that still exists. You know, the, certainly there's been a lot of evolution in what Renaissance fairs are and how they work as a business, even where they fit into the cultural map of the country. But there's still this legacy of, of, of creative enterprise um, and a spirit of play that is woven throughout this whole heritage and all of the fairs. That is a really, you know, a really important part of American culture. And it's, it's you know, when I was... 21 and first edition for a fair. I'd never heard of a Renaissance festival until this friend of mine suggested that it might be an interesting thing for me. You know, I don't, I don't know how many 21 year old college students in America have never heard of a Renaissance festival at this point. They're, you know, it, it's much more an established part of the, you know, the cultural landscape. Absolutely. I, you know, coming into the current times, and that, like, speaking of that magic, I actually performed at the uh, West Virginia Renaissance Festival wow. in uh, in 2020 this year. It was magic. It was magic, mm. you know. And it was just, it's this little teeny wee festival started by uh, Tazo, the mm. jouster, jouster, and then uh, Dawn of New Pterodactyl Leather. Right. And so a 30-year performer and a 30-year crafter got together and decided to recreate something amazing. And it was, it was genuinely magic. And what was, I think, you know, on the one hand, it was a very sparse little show because, you know, so many cancellations, nobody knew what to expect. A lot of people were like, oh, you know, it's sort of a small show. I'm not going to drive all the way out there, you know, on the off chance that people will show up. Um, so that definitely had that aspect of it where it was very tiny and compressed. On the other hand, it's set on a working farm, a working horse farm, <laughs> you know? So the festival didn't open until 11 in the morning was, was canon because they had to do all their morning farm chores. But so consequently, you know, there's chickens wandering around. <laughs> there's, there's goats, you know, the, the goats were penned on the weekend, but goats trotting around, you know, during the week. And it was this absolutely beautiful, just heart space that was so creative and so fresh. It was people were approaching it freshly. Um, and if, if I, if there was a festival that I've been to recently um, that actually still like made me say, Oh, 
oh, I can hearken back on that emotional state and, and feel that, that magic. It was, it was there. It was just really neat, you know, and there were a couple of other old time, quite a few other old timer. I don't like to think of myself as old timer. <laughs> Veteran Renaissance Festival performance. Yes, careful how you label us here. There, <laughs> <I know>, right? <laughs> um, and we were all just like, "How do you, do you? Are you feeling that? Are you feeling that? Because I'm feeling that, you know." And it was we were all really giggly about it. It was super cool. That's great. That's yeah. great. Yeah, it was great. It was great. Yeah, I think there is something about scale um, that you know, when when there when a festival is young um, and usually smaller. Um, there's there di different sizes of crowds have um and and of participation you know have have different potential and under a certain size under a you know when a crowd is under a few thousand people um it really there's a real difference in intimacy um and and contact uh, you know people we used to talk about this at sterling when when in the early in the early years um, about, um, uh, about when the magic happened, when, when at some point during the day, there would be a wave, um, that would, that would pass over the festival almost every, every day, every festival day. Um, and, and there was a lot of talk about like, did you feel that? What, what, what was that exactly? And it was the feel, we kind of drew in or circled around in the idea that it was, it was the wave when resistance dissolved um people coming into the festival not really sure what they were getting into and who are these people who are trying to pretend to be somebody else and talking to me funny and I'm not sure i'm comfortable with this and you know no i'm not your uncle bob and you know <laughs> all of those <laughs> uh, all of those little bits of resistance um and at some point because of the size of the crowd and the amount of recontact that character characters could have you could develop relationships um with everybody in the crowd you know and um and those continuous reaffirming of the premise of the, of the festival reality finally would break through and people would say oh this is a play space <laughs> i don't have to you know bring my rules about what's right and what's real and um, I can let go and give in to whatever this is, which seems to be really fun and joyful and celebratory and simply release into that. And once that sort of hundredth monkey effect takes place, there really is this sense of, of a magical transformation. And, uh, you know- Like the that, suspension of disbelief hits a critical mass. Yeah, exactly. And suddenly we're exactly. all there on the same page, yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to. Know. Yeah, yeah, no, and 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 something like that, I think, sort of carries forth in in just in the general heritage of larger festivals, where people come. You know, once a festival is really established, and you have a, a great a large body of people who have been coming for years, then they come with all of their expectation expectations about what the festival day is going to be like, and and that gives that a whole transformation sort of a jump start. It's also steeped in history and lore is really what it is. It's the Southern California Renaissance Pleasure Fair, the, or the, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair, as, as it was known, was the first festival 
Uh, it was developed from the very seeds of an idea of um, a woman named Phyllis Patterson. She was this cool lady. You know, I only had a couple of interactions with her over the, the early years of the festival. I did that show from 1990 through about 94, 5, 6, something like that, uh, early 90s. And um, had scattered interactions with her, but she was always very sort of mythic and and down home at the same time, you know, or, or it, it, she was a very interesting character. Um, every year, the Renaissance Pleasure Fair had used to, I have, I've not been since uh, it's under the current management, but every every year, it used to have uh, just a little living history diorama sort of thing that you could walk through with photos of the early days and, you know, little little write-ups and documents um, uh, defining them. And one of the things that I really loved about walking through that is that the the visual of that in the earliest of days, like the photographs that they would have, you know, from the first year. And it was, it was so a product of the 60s. It was a product of the Vietnam War era. It was a product of, uh, you know, like there were photographs of, of young women in full, you know, in Renaissance, like peasant gear, but with, with berets and, and their fists upraised in front of signs that say, um, say no to catapult testing. You know, and it, was, it was bringing the idea of of the ideas that they were dealing with right. at Vietnam War era um, performers and participants into the medieval times. And what would the was it the way it was? You know, it was it was both sixties era and simultaneously gloriously Monty Python. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was just delicious, you know. And so those are some of the. Um, the things that I most remember about that living history tour that they that they would do, and where I came into it in the '80s was the late '80s. Was it was so codified? I mean, I remember my friend Cat, who was the person who uh, first started me doing festival Cat Friend. We were you had to go before a panel, you know, or a, a, a costume director that would go over your costuming piece by piece and tell you if it was approved and she had her costuming she had one overdress that had these rainbow threads around like it was it was full cotton like cotton linen but it had just this really light rainbow surging at the at the edges and she was forbidden to wear it because that would never happen in the Renaissance. And, you know, and it was just like, I, it, you know, we were all like, we're not getting paid. We're just here, man. Really? <laughs> you know, so that was that was one of those hilarious things. But also the dialect was so like in those early years, I would read um, The Prince and the Pauper every year before festival to get myself into dialect. And there was this point where, uh, so my friend Kat and I, the aforementioned Kat, were both going, we were both students. And uh, so we were living on campus and we would ride down together from San Francisco down to Agora, 
and uh, Devore, you know, in those early days of the festival. And um, so we would be in dialect hard, you know, and it was, it was, you know, people would call you on it and you were as a, as a performer, as a random, you know, participant, as a crafter, everybody was expected to keep it going because this is what creates the magic, right? And so there was this point where we had walked into like a head shop in San Francisco, right? And we're just kind of looking at things and, oh, you know, whatever. But we're in full dialect and just chitting and not even aware of it. It was like this totally subconscious sort of thing because we were so immersed at that point. And we're in there for, you know, a couple of minutes chatting back and forth. And this kid behind the counter is looking at us going, where are you people from? And we hadn't even noticed. It was so, it, it was so genuine. And we were just like, oh, we, we were doing the, oh my God, we were doing the Renaissance Festival, you know? And it was just this intuitive, thick, you know, like the dialect coaching was, was thick, you know? So that's part of what I remember most from that time is both the fact that it was irritatingly strict and also the fact that that strictness was what genuinely created the the full immersion effect, you know, and the the depth of the moment for everybody involved. No, that very much parallels my experience with with Sterling in the early '80s. Um, you know, as a as a cast member, we went three weeks early, um, three and a half weeks early, and six days a week, we were in classes on dialect and manners and history and custom and costume and as well as the performing techniques of improv and, and interaction. And um, so by the time we came out of this, you know, really intense um, immersion, um, yeah, we were in the, that same boat very much, you know, <laughs> hard to turn it off and, um, and, and really delighting in, 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 in the, you know, in the play space that we were able to create um, and uh, the theatricality of it. And that discipline, as you said, you know, it's like one of the, I think, um, the power of, of that kind of commitment is that um, all the, the, the performance has such a solid context that there's a whole range of, of comedy that you can, that you can access um, because of the things you're not allowed to refer to, are not allowed to do, and that um, that discipline um, gives you some freedom in a way um, to more fully embody the character and the time and the place. Um, and I think that was very much a part of of that sense of of magic that um, that we conveyed and and. Um, um, participated in in those in you know when back back when that sense of of commitment was was much more um strong and enforced you know there really was i mean in my contract it said you will not break character from the hour of 10 a.m to 6 p.m you are your character and you're committed to that and you shall not speak as yourself or refer to anything outside of that character reality. Um, and that's, that's hard, but it creates 
a really great platform upon which to um, to work as entertainer. And knowing that everybody that you interact with is you know is going to be in the same on the same page. All of the other performers, anybody in costume, um, will accept and amplify that reality. And so it really, yeah, it really did create this um, amazing play space. Absolutely. I remember, I remember taking pass, uh, passages from, uh, it's going to sound so funny, from the King James Bible and mm -hmm. saying it as, as, you know, so for example, <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, he maketh me down to lie. You know, and going through and just taking these these King James and and working that, how would that be said? I lie down in cold pastures, you know, or what have you, and just working that part of it, or doing recitation from Shakespeare, or doing recitation mm -hmm. from The Prince and the Pauper, which was a favorite of mine just as a read, you know, and the fact that it's written so heavily in dialect. But right, I, right. I think your your experience, I can only imagine as a as an actor whose sole goal, like the the dialect. asked me to speak about The Prince and the Pauper, which yeah. was a Mark Twain novel. Um, and it tells the story of, it was Mark Twain's uh, first um, attempt at historical fiction uh, back in the 1880s. And it tells the story of uh, Tom Canty um, and Prince Edward the fourth or the sixth, let me think. Oh, sixth, okay, so Prince Edward the sixth who uh, were identical twins, but, but are identical. They were born on the same day. They were identical, interchangeably so. And so uh, Tom Canty comes under the eye of the prince in some way, and it's that classic shift where the peasant is dressed up in the prince's clothes, and the prince gets to go and explore the world mm -hmm. as a peasant, and they do a switch, and they do a switch back the dialectic writing of, of Twain at that time was so cool. I mean, it was, it's so cool, but it was one of my go-tos because it was so fun. It's such a fun read. I always found Shakespeare, uh, Prince and Popper was, uh, was more approachable. And as somebody who had never studied Shakespeare or had any actor training whatsoever, Shakespeare was less, well, less approachable to me. As accessible. A, yeah, it was less accessible, correct. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a little you know, as a little crafter girl. That's always been an interesting, that was, you know, that was one of the tensions we talked about, you know, when we were doing our workshops is you do need to walk that line between authenticity and accessibility. And that's always been part of the, uh, the dynamic at, at festivals is like, well, you need to have a certain amount of integrity or the whole thing falls apart. Um, and I mean, integrity in the terms of, of things holding together and continuity between um, different aspects of the whole event. But if you but you, you can't be in the Renaissance <laughs> because um, so many frames of reference just wouldn't work. And also, you know, there's all of the, the more practical aspects of it. it really was a difficult time. And, you know, you, you don't want to reproduce things like the plague and open sewers and, <laughs> you know, all of those delightful aspects of <laughs> of that era though is that uh is that socal in those early days absolutely especially dialectically and i think there was such a universal commitment to it that we dragged the participant or the, the patron in we mm -hmm. people were dragged into it forcibly forced to engage with it 
Sure. Because there was sure. that because that's what it was. And genuinely, mm-hmm. like like craft shops would be fine if they caught you duding or whatever. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, um, there was there were ramifications <laughs> if if you if you broke accent. And it was so today I I find like REC shows try to do that. Um, you know, Bristol tuxedo, they try to have more of an insistence on universal accent, universal dialect. But back then, I think maybe it was that, or maybe it was just the craft shop that I was at. I was with fellowship foundry back then. And they were utterly committed to the process. You know, we were one of the first booths that you, you walked into, uh, as you came into that shop or into that show. And so there was complete and utter participation in that thing it mm-hmm. was my experience of of the craft land crafter land you know and we were even at the time we were all told you are all actors this is all sure. this is what we all do you're not there's no division this is this is the way this works and this is the way this will be successful and it it, it was sincere like that was a, yeah. a sincere statement southern california certainly was you know the origin and and it's very interesting. You were talking about how it connected with with the political realities of the time, and also I think with the the artistic and political sensibilities of the, that that region. And it actually started as a benefit. Well, it first started as a as a project, just a personal project of Phyllis Patterson's as a living history project for I think for like her high school students. The f- the first sort of big public event was a, a benefit for Pacifica Radio, which was the um, the public radio station, the the radical public radio station in Southern California. According to Well Met, which is a uh, um, history of Renaissance festivals in America, one of the things that was going on at that time is that the sheriff of LA had cracked down on the coffee houses in Los Angeles County. And so all of the sort of the beatnik counterculture folks um, didn't have a place to gather. And then suddenly there was this festival going on, you know, outside of the city, and the radio station was one of the things that sort of brought them all together or, you know, as communication wise. So it sort of spontaneously became a refuge for these, these beatnik refugees basically from, from LA. And, and that was one of the things that kind of jump-started the culture of the fairs is all of the artists and, and performers and, and, and thinkers and poets and, um, and people got into this art project that was the Renaissance Festival uh, or the Renaissance Fair and craftspeople sort of spontaneously discovered it and think, well, I, I'm, I'm, I make pottery that would work in a Renaissance environment. And that marketplace um, sort of developed, um, you know, uh, out of all of that as, as it grew. And then they expanded to Northern California. And then in the seventies, um, other uh, entrepreneurs, had studied what was going on in in Southern California and realized that it was possible might be possible to to recreate that um, in a business fashion. Still, they they sort of transplanted that that culture of of crafts and arts uh, and improvisation and interaction that that came out of the Southern California that sixty seven Southern California experience. And then there were these little islands that plunked up around. The rest of of the country first in minnesota and then in texas and kansas city and maryland and sterling upstate new york um, in the late 70s so there was this kind of um propagation of this concept that um jumped around the country in the second generation the second wave of festivals in the 70s and then of course people went to those festivals 
And, and then there was this third blossoming in a sense, um, there's no clear division of those, but you know, it wasn't it was like a generational thing specifically, but, but as the concept became more accepted and as the business model was, was developed and, and other entrepreneurs realized that it could be done in their city, then there was this, this explosion. And um, I think by the, by the early nineties, there was a Renaissance festival pretty much in any in around any city that had a professional sports team. That was, <laughs> that's one of the things that um, friends of mine and I observed is like, there's a correlation there. If, if there's enough population to support a professional sports team, there's enough population to support a Renaissance festival. So that kind of, that kind of, I don't know, just became a, a an observed phenomenon. Um, Various. And when I had entered the, the industry in, in 1982, I had no idea that there was more than one Renaissance festival. I, you know, just went to um, this one in, in upstate New York. And, um, but as I met other performers and, and craftspeople and the, the sort to hear the lore of where the festival came from, I realized, oh, there's a, there's a thing going on here and it's nationwide and, and it's growing. I kind of uh, got swept up in it was lucky, I guess, getting into the industry in a time when it was growing so dramatically. And there was uh, a real need for entertainment at other festivals. So I was just blessed with this circumstance where people would pay me to create, <laughs> which um, is an interesting, also an inter interesting, I think, dimension of Renaissance festivals as we pretend to do something, we often discover underlying realities about the nature of the thing that we're trying to pretend to be or do. There I was having actual patronage, just like a Renaissance artist might have had, you know, um, the, the Duke, the Count, the, the King, well, whoever it was that ran the festival, and most owners of those times labeled themselves at least one of those things you know they would throw me a, a purse of coin to uh to make them laugh <laughs> and make their people laugh and it really was like stepping into this uh this 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 um interesting recapitulation of 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 those those circumstances that we were trying to pretend to be and do there's so many different directions to go from there like <laughs> kind of right. found myself in a brain lock um, well, you, you know, it's funny because uh, when so Jonathan and I had this wonderful um, sort of the seeds of this conversation, really, we had this chat on uh, Doug Muma's porch um, one evening this uh, this early this fall. It was so it was so enlightening uh, to to have somebody with with such a similar yet different experience in those early days. And one of the things that I noticed at the time was that, uh, Jonathan, was that when you were, when you dis were discussing about, uh, discussing your experience, you took this long arc. Like you were very aware of the long arc uh, in that conversation also just now. Whereas I tend to, to dive in on a particular moment, mm -hmm. you know, in, in the, the storytelling process and in the way I remember those times. It's not throughout the arc, it's through specific moments. But I, I was just thinking of that in, in relation to that conversation that we had, which was just magical, just sitting and kind of being the old dudes on the porch <laughs> with, our, with our 
glasses <laughs> wide and just I, I like, do you remember when you know yeah. and, and really like I I remember the first time I saw you perform mm-hmm. um very first time and it was sh- shocking to me because I didn't know what you did you know I knew <laughs> that you were a mud beggar and I'd, I'd seen you in, in the street for however long but this would have been at, at Scarborough like what it, it, Scarborough in the early to mid 90s and you know, and I, I had seen the the Crocker character wandering around in the streets. And then I went to your show for the first time. <laughs> I remember you like watching it and the setup for the story. And, and somehow it was, you know, you were acting out the character and, you know, and then whatever character put mud in the most disgusting place he could imagine was the narrator saying, and Jonathan's got this clump of mud in his hands and he looks out with just this whole body realization and just goes funk <laughs> it was the most ridiculously funny thing and I had just no idea what to expect of of that show and I remember just in that moment of going <laughs> I used to respect that man <laughs> So again, with a tangent into the detailed moment, but yeah, that was just kind of one of those, one of those visuals, I think, when you know somebody long enough, you, there's, how to say it, there's this, there's this thing in certain languages, um, uh, Asian ideogrammic languages called a key idiom. And it's, it's basically, as was explained to me a million years ago, so I'm probably butchering it, but it's the idea that this, this one pictogram means this thing but it has this swirl of alternate meanings and nuances that cluster around it. Okay. You know, so when, when I am speaking with you, it's like, you are like the key idiom. <laughs> then there are these, this cluster of nuances and, and details that float around you and, um, and also inform, you know, the conversation. So, I sort of dove into that and went into tangential reality. But so <laughs> back to you, Jonathan. <laughs> yes. Yes. The, the, it, it, I often wonder just what, 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 uh, what people think of um, when they, <laughs> when they see me, because, you know, so much of my life and so much of my interaction and meeting people has been in character and the characters I've chosen to portray at fairs have been, um, you know, fairly um, extreme. You know, my, my my first role was the village idiot, and that's really has informed everything else I've done. Um, so, you know, being outrageous, being um, you know a, a, an oddball kook, and pushing the limits of social conformity, you know, has has always been a part of what I what I bring to my performances. Your your story reminds me of the, the the woman I ended up marrying had the same experience as you did, where she she met me, you know, you know, off stage. And then she was also watching this mud show that she could see from the 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 porch of the, the shop that she was staying in. And I guess for a couple of weeks, she had no idea that the guy on the stage at the mud show was the same guy that she had been meeting socially in other circumstances. And when the two kind of came together, there was a, a moment of of, uh, <laughs> of of shock and reassessment. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think I had a, a similar conversation with uh, Angeline um, at some point as well, Angeline Zephyr. 
and mm -hmm. uh, and we had we had that same moment and kind of uh, one of our early bonding experiences <laughs> was discussing that exact same um, that exact same thing, you know. Uh, Angelin being another old, uh, you know, old time, old time. I've got to stop using it. A veteran, <laughs> a long, long time, a yes, long time member. Of yes. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Renfair History presented by Digital Renfair. My name is Misty Bernard. You can find me online at bluemuseproject.com and also my jewelry business at seasongdesigns.com. Joining me has been the inimitable Jonathan Crocker. Yes, thank you for listening. I'm Jonathan Crocker. You can find me at wildman.com, representing the Wild Men, the Arizona Renaissance Festival, or moremud.com, which represents theater in the ground, performing mud shows at the Ohio Renaissance Festival. You can also find us on Facebook as uh, Theater in the Ground and the Wild Men.